Welcome to the Holy Not Hope podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the life of the early church and what we can learn from it. And we're going to be talking about God's power and how he uses it to help the church grow. Awesome. Looking forward to the conversation, guys. In his name I find, in his name I find, in his name I find. Podcast. I'm joined again by Josh today. It's good to be back with you guys. <laughs> Missed you all. Uh, so we're going to start again with our hope in action, as we usually do. Yes. For me, uh, one of the cool things I got to see this week, uh, th- there's kind of a, a world one and there's kind of a myself one. Sure. Yeah. Um, this last week I got to go up to camp in South Dakota with the Brenners um, and got to meet a lot of new people, got to learn from a lot of people about, you know, their journeys with God. And uh, just being up there was so awesome to kind of sit back and relax and, and, you know, dwell on God and kind of let the rest of the world slip away for a week. And it was so awesome just to to get together with with people that were so serious about following God and and about, you know, figuring out how to do that better. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was just a great rest. Um, And a reminder that, you know, there are, you know, still a lot of people that, really care about, you know, continuing to, to learn how to, how to follow God more and how to love him better um, within the community we have. And, you know, I think that's so easy to forget as we're, you know, I'm sitting here with, you know, not going out very often and mm-hmm. not seeing people very often. You know, that's, that's something that's easy to lose is the grasp of the community of the church because, you know, we often only get to see it once a week nowadays. We don't get to spend time mm-hmm. with our church uh, outside of that. And, so it, it's easy to slip back into that rut of like, that's just a Sunday thing. You know, that's not right. the way the world works. Um, but it was so cool to see that again this week. Uh, the other thing is that my dad sent me this really cool graphic. Uh, he's a pharmacist and he sent me this really cool graphic of how biopharmaceutical companies around the world have kind of come together uh, to work on combating the coronavirus. Mm. And he he sent me this graphic and it, it shows... Uh, around the world right now, there's like 176 uh, antivirals that are be w- being worked on. There's like 247 treatments and like 150 vaccines that are being worked on. And just the community around the world, these little you know biotech companies are all just coming together, um, working together on this one thing. Uh, and it's something that I don't think we're you know really gonna mm-hmm. we haven't really seen um, in the past, and I don't think we're gonna really see in the future unless you know something else like this happens. But you know this is such a, an anomaly, I think. So uh, that was just really cool to, to see, you know, the people around the world coming together in a time of crisis, uh, mm-hmm. not, you know, being split up and, and working on their own things, but, you know, coming together and working on that. So that was really cool. That's cool that your dad as a pharmacist has a window and an idea of that going on that maybe some of us don't have and a picture of people working together or having things in common for the common good, which is an element that we'll talk about today and our passage that we'll be discussing. But um because it doesn't match what you see going on very much right now in the world as far as uh, unity and working together, at least not my not my perception of it. And so it's cool to think that these companies, which frankly probably are usually competing with each other um, for the sake of like getting contracts and being the ones to discover things and, and uh, create things, that they're sharing information now and working together because they realize that this is a serious issue that needs to be combated quickly 
the coronaviruses. And so um, that that helps them to put aside their their rivalries. For me, I, w- I had a real hard time. Uh, I've been looking for positives uh, frequently in the news, and it's hard to see them. Um, it just it really is. Anytime I feel like I turn it on, I'm like reading stories, and I'm like, and even ones that you know, some people will be like, oh, this was a positive thing. I'm sitting there going like. Well, I can envision a whole other group of people that this was not a positive thing. Even the positive things, news stories are are not necessarily positive, depending depending on your um, perspective. And so for me, it was quite simple. What my uh, what my hope and action was this last week. The one of the two, we're we're involved in a couple mission families at our church as the pastoral couple, and a mission family for us that you might call them life groups, um, D groups, community groups, whatever. But the reason why we call them mission family is we want them to be a family. Um, we want people to care about one another within them like a family, and we want it to be a family on mission. So not just uh, you know family, you know kind of inbred or whatever, but a family that's reaching out and going, we're here to bring truth to neighbors, to people who need help. So one of them, uh, after not being able to get together in person for quite a long time um, with coronavirus, got together again for the first time last Thursday, and it was very simple. We just met at a park, um, actually behind the school building that we meet at. The kids swung on swings and played on the playground, and um, we sat on the grass and listened to music and caught up and ate chips, uh, you know, individually packaged chips, you know, and the kids loved that, and, and dads were playing uh, ball with other guys' kids and whatever. And, um, you know, this group of people that were coming together don't necessarily agree on everything that's going on in the world. But what was amazing is just the simplicity of spending time. The only thing we did, the three elements we did, were spend some time together. So we were we didn't have a schedule. Um so enjoy the company, enjoy the scenery, enjoy the, the weather. We ate chips, so we quote unquote broke bread or crunched, you know, munched potatoes, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we prayed. That was it. We shared prayer requests. And those were the three things. Nothing major or flashy happened that you would go like, oh, wow. But as I walked away and we walked home from that um, gathering, I just told my wife, I'm like, you know, that to me feels like what church should be all about like no we didn't have some really awesome worship i didn't share a really awesome devo nobody else was like with this really profound devo we didn't have like an agenda we showed up with our families to hang out to have a little grub and to pray for one another and to pray for others in our worlds that need us to be praying for them um and it just was a nice refreshing simple like it was a gathering, you know, it, it was something, but it had a very uh, natural, organic feel to it of just like, you know, we should do this more often. And it makes you wonder, as the, and this will lead right into um, our conversation today, like, why don't we do that more often? Like, what's holding us back? And what, what gets in our way as uh, Colorado Springs or Hope or American society for spending that kind of time? together doing those kind of things so it, it really encouraged me um last week and made, left me going like man I, I i'm excited about the next time able to get together like that so that yeah, was my absolute action i mean that's you know just like you you know i, I feel the same way that's the church mm-hmm. um, and that's so cool to to be able to, to see that once again uh that's the church yeah and the the just as a quick thing with that i'm not poo-pooing on 
social media or Zoom or whatever as tools to use. But what I've heard from all of our mission family leaders almost consistently is at first it was awesome to have those things as a way of keeping people together um, when it was like no other option, but it really does not replace. It doesn't replace. And so I've had people telling me that like, well, you can really grow your church using only Zoom. And I'm like, well, maybe in some ways. I mean, you certainly can share praying for one another and, you know, devotional or uh, you know, whatever, like focus on the apostles teaching as we're about to where you could do that through zoom. I, I don't know if you can do it as effectively, but you can do it. But the other elements, the spending time together, the eating together, what are you, you know, those things just, they don't replicate and they're so valuable, um, to helping us feel like we're not alone in the world and that our family is surrounded by church family and community that loves them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you want to dive into acts then? Absolutely. All right. So we are talking about Acts 2. We're right at the end of the chapter. Yes. Uh, and we'll start with verse 42 today. And this is going to be one of the ones that we kind of just sit and camp on uh, because there's so much in here um, mm-hmm. that we can talk about because this is a really important verse uh, for teaching us what church is, for giving us an example for how we do church. It's one that a lot of churches look to as a guideline for how they do church. Uh, it's one that a lot of theologians say this is like the beginning of the church life in mm-hmm. the Bible. Uh, so let's dive into verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Mm. So this is the early church here. This is right after you know Peter has spoken in all kinds of different tongues. And uh, this last verse right before it was, you know, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this is a group of believers that is coming together yeah. and living life together. And verse 42 tells us what they were doing as they did that. Mm-hmm. So let's jump. Uh, there's four things listed here in this verse. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about each one of those and what they uh, should look like in the life of the church, how we can learn from the mm-hmm. early church about those things. Yeah. So the first thing, apostles teaching. Yeah. This one, this one's a really interesting one. Uh, in my view, the other three are often undervalued in church, mm. but I think a lot of times teaching is overvalued in church. Mm. That's an interesting thought. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think you know one main reason is because that's what makes up our Sunday morning services, and, and people just look at that and go, you know, that's what church is. Um, as far as the historical background of why that is, I think a lot of it goes back to Plato. This Greek philosophy was, you know, a big background for the early church and for the Bible and how they processed things. It was, you know, just like as we would say in our society, you know, we have different things that we, uh, you know, different references we make or different, you know, ways that we process information that are, uh, you know, specific to our culture, to our society. That's the same way uh, that, you know, early Christians in, in the Bible, that's the society that the Bible was written in. Was Greek philosophy was a huge part of the culture and society at the time. And Plato, his view of virtue was that knowledge itself is virtue. If mm. you've ever, you know, been in high school, you know, literary English class or like philosophy class or whatever, you know, the uh, story of Plato that we always know about is the story of, you know, the guys in the cave. 
and they see the shadows on the wall and they make up all these names for these shadows uh, and they think they know what they are, but they don't really know the actual true forms of what is creating the shadows. And then one guy gets free and he walks up out of the cave and he sees the true forms of everything that's creating these shadows. And suddenly the whole world has, you know, become real to him and he knows everything. And because he knows everything, he is the true virtuous man. And he goes back to the people in the cave and he goes, hey, you got to come out here. And they go, well, we're just going to stay here. And, you know, that's that's Plato's view of virtue is that knowledge itself is virtue. And that kind of uh, has, I think, permeated the culture of the church a lot uh, throughout its history is the idea that just if you know what to do, that's good enough. Mm. Uh, if you know what to do, then you're just going to kind of follow that and, you know, you're going to be able to, to do it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we've learned that a lot of times knowing the right thing is not enough. I mean, it just comes mm-hmm. straight from James. If you know the right thing to do and do not do it, that's sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so knowing the right thing to do only gives you more opportunity to sin because you now know what you should be doing. And if you don't do that, that's what sin is. Yeah, well, and you, what you what you just said reminds me of the other Bible verse that says knowledge puffs up. You know, mm. love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And basically, what it's saying is that like knowledge really isn't if you're not wise enough to apply knowledge in a way that honors God and is actually true, then knowledge is not a good thing. Like honestly, the Bible's view is that having more knowledge, if you don't steward that well towards doing rightly. Um, uh, accurately, whatever it is, if it's just a way of making you feel better about yourself or better than others or what, or checking a box. Um, and the, and when you're talking about this, I hadn't thought about this before, but that some people, when they come to a church and they're checking out a church, they go, well, that guy's teaching doesn't feed me, you know, and you'll hear that conversation, which as any preacher should be humble enough to go, how can I help deliver the word of God in a way that is more nourishing to our people? But that goal doesn't only include increasing their knowledge. For every preacher worth his salt, that goal has to include uh, increasing their wisdom, which means their knowledge put into action. Like, how is it going to change their life? Not just how is it going to make them leave and go, I'm sure glad when I read the Bible the next time I know that fact because then I can feel good about knowing it. Okay, there is good in that, but only because it helps you then apply it, what you're knowing. Um, and so I do think you know, there's been plenty of, I'll make a semi-controversial statement. Um, there's been plenty of great pastors out there that have been unfairly criticized and dismissed in their time because of their lack of preaching or teaching ability, which is a something every preacher should constantly be working on. This isn't an excuse for laziness or not working on being better or, or more succinct or more clear, whatever it is. And there are other guys who aren't very good as pastoral leaders or spiritual leaders, frankly, who are great teachers and communicators and are maybe overvalued. Um, So either one can happen where somebody skirts by on other real serious deficiencies because they're good at sharing knowledge and having their people leave each Sunday going, wow, I'm sure glad I understand the Bible more. And man, he makes it clear. It's like, yeah, good. That's his gift. But... A pastor is much more than just that. Um, the other thing that bothers me about this verse, and I share this, this is a a little bit of a hill to die on and axe to grind for hope is, but if people are familiar with hope, um, we've always tried to include an interactive element 
because we started as a Bible study, and most of what made our Bible study great wasn't me talking. It was the talking happening between the people. So you ask a question and let them talk, and that was what people most cared about. Now, as we've gotten bigger and coronavirus has hit and we've had to put the kids in with us, that's constantly had to be changing, and you know, it, it's always difficult to figure out how to – create that interactive element when you have little ones in there and there's a bigger group. Um, but still the principle is there's a difference between one person delivering content and there being a conversation that the Holy Spirit is leading about his word. Um, and I know it's uncomfortable for many, but I truly believe that when the first, when Paul was preaching and teaching and things, I don't think people tolerated – it says one time Paul preached so long that a guy fell asleep in a window and fell out and died, and then Paul had to heal him. Well, that gets the idea that Paul was just free to just sit there and talk, but I don't think that's what it was. I think it was people there wrestling with Paul and like pleading – like saying, hey, what about this verse? Or Jesus didn't do this, and I think it was interactive the whole time. I think it was interactive with Peter. It says that Peter pleaded with others, which means they were giving him objections, and he was answering back. Um, and so I just feel like we as pastors, it's probably something that we all need to apologize for, is it's very easy to want to control the service and control the the messaging of your church. And I've heard the comment made by pastors, particularly in large churches, that people, you know, um, well, people, you know, they only want to follow a type, a top flight communicator. And when you're one of those communicators, you you have to steward the pulpit because you can't just let anybody up there. It's like, okay, but can you create space for other people to share their questions, their whatever that looks like in your church, whether that's texting in the questions and interacting with them, I don't care. But can we have it be a true Bible study where we are each focusing on the apostles teaching every almost every week somebody says something and i don't expect what they're going to say in answer to one of my questions or in answer one of the other guys teachings questions and through that through their perspective it helps me usually see the scripture because a lot of times what they're saying even if i haven't thought of it isn't wrong it's just different i just because i'm one person and the spirit is working through my experiences i don't have the full range of perspectives that any verse can have and so they'll share something, and it'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. And it helps me as the pastor and preacher grow because of it being conversational in ways that people wouldn't get to be a part of or observe if I only get up there and like, hey, here's what the Holy Spirit has told me to tell you today. You know, uh, get it right. There will be a test. See you next week. That kind of thing. I think it can be much more engaging and dynamic and conversational and in that way, egalitarian in the true sense of the word, meaning each person has a voice and is encouraged to share it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense what you're talking about with, you know, Paul and Peter and, and the way that they would speak, you know, would often be interactive. That makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, that's often what you see in Paul's writings is, you know, yes. he whenever he, you know, makes a point, he'll go, well, does this mean that we or, you know, now some would say that um, he, he does that a lot. Right. Uh, it's crazy how often it happens in his writings. And I think that comes from experience of, you know, speaking to people and getting those responses. And he goes, okay, this is a problem that people often have with this thing. So when I write to this church, I'm going to, you know, already address that. So people aren't questioning and, and worried about what about this? You know, he, he just addresses it straight up then. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think it's even more important for us because, you know, you look at this verse here, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Mm -hmm. You know, the apostles, guys that were with Jesus, guys that were specially guided by God. 
we're not apostles. So our teaching has even more opportunity to be, you know, fallible to, mm-hmm. to, you know, like you said, to have our uh, own uh, interpretation, have our own uh, perception of the Bible come in the way of what it's actually saying. And so, you know, we should be listening to other voices and opening mm-hmm. ourselves up to those so that we might get a fuller view of, you know, what God's word means to all these different people, you know? Well, I love uh, the Holy Spirit just used you to confirm what we had just talked about. So I said how the Holy Spirit brings a passage and you didn't think of it that way. I wasn't even thinking about Paul's writings and how he has a very conversational tone. He's always posing and answering rhetorical questions. And you brought that up because that's what the Holy Spirit reflected in you. I hadn't even thought about that. So even right now, we just demonstrated you read this passage and it makes you think of Paul's writing style. I hadn't even thought about that. I was thinking of like the logic and the history and the the book of Acts and what we see recorded there and what we know from church history of how they did things. But you're looking at something other like the literary context, the fact that is it likely that his writing style was vastly different than his teaching style? Probably not. Um, They say that, you know, you usually write in the same style you talk, or at least you should try to when you're giving a speech. Don't try and write in this formal style. Write like you talk because it's going to be easier to present. And so that's an element I hadn't even thought of that further confirms that idea that like Paul was obvi- are always making a rhetorical argument. He was he was a lawyer almost. Yeah, you for know? sure. Paul was presenting a case and he would talk long and you know I get a bad rap deservedly so and a lot of pastors for being long winded. None of us have anything on Paul. Paul, you get the sense was like a a dreadfully long winded and yet powerful guy. Um, not using big eloquent words, but just being convincing in his step-by-step detailed explanation of whatever he was trying to teach about Jesus. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we haven't had anybody fall asleep and fall out of their chairs and hope yet. So Not yet. I've seen a couple of closed eyes and things like that. But uh, the other thing that stood out to me, you said we passed by this, is um, just the, the idea of being devoted. Uh, I, I made a point on this on Sunday. Like, this wasn't... But when you think of devotion, you don't think of showing up to your team's sports practice once a week, you know, and there's practice every day and you show up once a week. That's not devotion. You don't think of like making every other one of your kids' birthdays. You don't think of, you know, calling your parent once every three months. You know, you don't think of um, showing up to church, you know, one, you know, on Christmas and Easter. Like that's not devotion. There's nothing wrong with that if that's where you're at, but when we hear the word devotion, it comes with this idea of like a commitment that is in daily practice. And that's not like an official definition of devotion, but that's like how I think of it. Something you're committed to that is an almost daily practice. If not daily, then you're making plans daily for how you're still committed to that cause. Um, and just kind of emphasize like these weren't these weren't once a week ideas for people. These weren't a couple times a month ideas. These were things that were a devoted regular part of their life, including the apostles teaching. Yeah. I think that's really interesting how you talked about like a sports team. I'm a huge fan of sports. And so, you know, that's something that I often think about as analogies and stuff. And like you said, you know, someone who's a new fan of a sports team, they're, they're not, I mean, you know, this isn't what you said, but this is just what I thought of when you said mm-hmm. that someone who's a new fan of a sports team, they're not going to be going to every practice of a team. They're not going to be watching every single game on television. They're not going to be, you know, reading all the blogs about how mm-hmm. the team is doing. They're going to be like watching the big games and, yeah. you know, just like, okay, this is something important. You know, I'm, I'm going to check this out. Uh, it doesn't make them a worse fan. 
uh, it doesn't make them a worse person in any way. It just means that they haven't, you know, been in that atmosphere as long and they haven't had opportunities to understand how they enjoy it and the mm-hmm. ways that they can connect with uh, the team that they enjoy uh, in order to most get out, you know, get the most out of that fan team relationship. And I think it's the same way with church and with, with God, you know, someone who's a new Christian, they might not be going to church every week. Uh, you know, someone who is in a, in a tough time in life, they might not be going to church every week. That doesn't make them a worse person or a worse right. Christian. That just means that they're having a, you know, they haven't had the experience to understand, you know, what parts of church life they connect with God, connect with community the best through, um, you know, Maybe they're struggling with, you know, I, I've been trying to do this for so long. You know, maybe, maybe it's someone who's like, I watch the YouTube recaps of, of my, all my team's favorite games. And, right. you know, I, I just don't really enjoy it that much. And then later on, they, they like start reading some blogger and they go, I really enjoy this coverage of the team. It's the same way. You know, I, I think that, you know, as, you know, people come to church, church and they, you know, begin to get more uh, into that church life and into the community. And I think it's a big part of the church and the community and the you know pastor's role is to help them figure out how they connect to the community best and how they connect to God best. Uh, but they will find those ways as time goes on. Mm. Um, and then they will see that devotion yeah. uh, that we're talking about. Don't you think all of us kind of start as fans of Jesus and it's like a discipleship journey of moving to be true followers of Jesus? Yeah. I know that's true for me. I started out and I, I was a follower of Jesus in terms of objectively, but not in practice. I I was a fan of Jesus in practice. I was a follower of Jesus based off of faith in what he said was true of me. Um, And that's kind of like the difference. The difference between being a fan and a follower of Jesus is almost uh, akin to the difference between a fan of a team and a player on that team. Like a player on that team has, if they're going to have a spot on that team very long, they have a vested interest. You know, they are devoted. They are working out. They are working their craft. They're going to team meetings. They're figuring out what the coach's game plan is. They're, they are committed to advancing the mission of that team. Whereas a fan is like, man, I really hope the team does well, but there's a little bit less skin in the game. So it's like, man, if they, if they do something I don't like or make a statement I don't like or they win, you know, they lose games to their rivals, I'm done with them because there's not as much devoted to it. Whereas people that are in the in engaged in leading it or being on the front lines of it, whatever you, you say, are like, well, no, I'm devoted. You get this idea that these Christ followers, they weren't just like casually like, oh, this is cool. They were devoted to spreading it. Like this was going to be their new way of life and impact what they do. So that's devotion to the apostles' teaching. Yeah. Uh, second thing, fellowship. Right. So what is your view of fellowship in the church? Well, so fellowship, I, I gave my um, pocket dictionary definition of fellowship for anybody not familiar. That's just a big fancy church word for hanging out. <laughs> like, oh, fellowship, you know, the fellowship of the believers. That just means like when the believers hung out, they hung out. Um, and uh, what I, I've been a Christian now for uh, 20 years. Okay. So um, I've been a Christian now since I was in my mid-teens. And... Uh, really what strikes me is how little of this we do or how little of this we do as an overall church family. I think most of us that are Christ followers have experienced times of doing this with a few others in our church family and oftentimes ones that we pick kind of like, oh, I like them, whatever. But that the idea of spending 
untimed, unfettered um, expanses of hangout time together as an overall church is not something that has been modeled or valued or practiced in most of the churches we go to. So even think about most churches say, well, we have fellowship time. And then what they mean is the coffee and donuts time before or after service. Nothing wrong with those. That's a far cry from what we are seeing here. This isn't a casual, like, until the kids get too upset, like we kind of catch up and we go. This is, they spent time together. This was beyond the the official once a week gathering um, or celebration they were having. Like, this was something that was happening in their homes, in the community, you know, in the whatever social events were going on. They were hanging out together. Um, and so something that's always discouraged me as a Christian and as an introvert uh, is that as an introvert, if I'm going to show up to something, I want it to be very meaningful. I don't like small talk. I don't like chit chat. Uh, in fact, as a pastor, I hate being, I'm, I've become, I think, adept at doing it because I have to, um, but I hate making small talk with people. Like I just rather sh- uh, save my words. Um, and when I think about fellowship, like I want like real fun, having fun together, hanging out, whatever. Uh, and it feels like it's just so hard with our schedules and restrictions and like different needs to do that. Like, how do we do that? It's such a challenge. And yet this to me shows, well, if that's what all these new believers came to Jesus and the apostles first guidance was like, spend time together, pray for one another. It must have been important. It it probably is still important for us. And so it seems a little arrogant for us to believe that we can go without it. So the times in my life where I've been like, eh, I don't need groups. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I went on Sunday. I don't want to be around anybody else. That's a little bit arrogant of me because it's saying that whatever I think I need is wiser or more knowledgeable about what is spiritually good for me and for others than what God's word says. Um that being said, it's hard. And as a pastor, it's hard to figure out how to create spaces um, for people to have that kind of fellowship together. Yeah. Uh, talking about, you know, your fe- the, you're talking about fellowship and it's more than the 15 minute, you know, coffee and donuts time uh, that we so often just see in churches. It's more than the, you know, turn to your neighbor and say hello, you know, two the minutes awkward 30, yeah. <laughs> the awkward 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you apply that to your friends, those who you actually call your friends from your normal life, if you were to say, hey, let's go to, you know, Panera and stand in line and get coffee and then we'll just leave, you know, and <laughs> that's the fellowship that we have, you know, that's, that's, that's not, I never thought of it that way. That's, that's awesome. not fellowship. You know, that's not actually growing a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in my view, you know, fellowship is you know, between Christians, whether it's of the same church or not, you know, I, I have a lot of fellowship with Christians, you know, friends that aren't from hope, mm-hmm. but I think it's really important to have fellowship with those in the church too, because that's, you know, the church is a community coming together to encourage one another, to build mm-hmm. each other up. And so if you're saying, you know, I'm just going to find my fellowship elsewhere, you know, there are those who aren't going to be able to find their fellowship elsewhere mm-hmm. and they need encouragement and, and to be built up. And at the same time, we, you know, we ourselves need it too. Uh, so to pour into that fellowship within the church community uh, benefits us and it, it benefits uh, every, everyone that we come into contact with and, and you know, grow together in fellowship with. And, and together as a whole, 
that's what our goal is. Mm-hmm. Um, and fellowship accomplishes a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, and I think we do ourselves a disservice. And what, by the way, we're all so busy, right? So a lot of people would say, well, what's your reason for not hanging out more? Well, I'm just too busy. Well, you make time for what you value. So you're busy with something. Maybe you're busy with a lot of hangout time with people who aren't your church family, which is missional, and it's great. I have a feeling, though, a lot of times our busyness is primarily focused on um, us, if we're being honest and looking in the mirror. And so how do we make some time and say, well, part of my day needs to be devoted to encouraging spending time with even if it's on a phone call or a zoom or whatever and depending on what the situation calls for um another family and those are things that just it's hard to have that kind of hanging out through zoom or through a once a month thing or or whatever uh in order for any of us to really feel the benefits it needs to be a regular basis i i feel like it's almost like when you're trying to if you're a coach or you're on a team um you know, you're in any kind of business. If your people don't ever spend time together, how are they going to work well together when it's an important go time? Like when teams on the field, if they haven't practiced it all together, in other words, fellowshiped, uh, hung out, then what are they going to look like when things really start to get bad? And right now there's plenty of things pulling at every church's unity, lots of disagreements and things. Well, it's a lot easier to not like. Some people say it's it's really hard to hate or not like somebody you've been praying for. And I, I like to say, well, uh, I think it's really easy to hate and not like somebody you've, you've not been praying for and you've not been spending time with. That's the missing piece. When you, you know, oh, I'm going to pray for that person. You can sometimes pray un- insensitive, arrogant prayers over somebody. Like, well, I've been praying for them. I don't wish them ill, but like they're definitely wrong. When you spend time with them, it helps you go up, oh, Maybe I kind of do like that person. Maybe, maybe they're not so wrong, you know. Or maybe, maybe we can overcome this disagreement. Maybe my what I would pray over them for has changed because I've spent good quality time with them. And that's going to lead right into the next one, which is when they did this hanging out. What did they do? Like, what was a big aspect of that? It's going to sound really spiritual. Breaking of bread. Yeah, breaking of bread. So what does that mean? Well, breaking of bread just simply means eating. Like. It did, it did include, from the earliest church, it did include the communion event. Um, but a lot of churches have kind of skirted by the real purpose of the breaking of bread and gone like, oh, well, we do that. We do communion. Right now, all churches, that's all they can do. Uh, it's really frustrating to me, but it's better than nothing. And there is truth to that. The communion was a part of breaking of bread, but it was not what's meant here by what they were doing. They were eating lunch, dinner, breakfast, like they were eating together. They were sharing what they had, breaking a good loaf of bread, having fun, being merry. They were enjoying each other's company like we would with best friends. Like my, some of my favorite memories, dude, is, uh, is going to like a wing, like I love, I love wing places. I love sports bar food. So hanging out with buddies or family or whatever at a sports bar, it's a fun atmosphere in town. There's Buffalo Wild Wings, there's Bubba's and you just share a pizza or wings and everybody's like, oh, this is such good comfort food, and we're happy and whatever, and we're thankful for what God's doing. That's breaking your bread. They just had communion as part of it. We almost never do that with our church families, but that's what it is. So when we hear that throughout, breaking of bread, that's what they meant was part of the hanging out was eating together. Yeah, uh, my first instinct 
in this verse is to go to that's that's communion. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of times our standard interpretation of what this verse is talking about, because, you know, it seems like all this stuff is really just within, you know, stuff we could do within a church building type thing. Right. Uh, but later on, you know, in verse uh, 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, yeah. they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And that to me doesn't sound like communion at all. That just mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, fellowship over a meal. Right. Um, and so, like I said, I, I think there, like you said, that I think there's elements of both in there, um, and both are very important. Uh, well, and, but so many churches think about how we've created our buildings and our worship services. Sharing a meal together hasn't been valued for hundreds of years in the American church and longer in the church overall. It was like, and, and you know, I know this pains me to say, but what I fear led to it originally wasn't um, an over-focus on just practicality or, oh, we can get more people in. It was actually a lack of generosity because the earliest fellowship meals were predominantly supplied by the wealthier members of the church, would bring whatever they had. Everybody would bring what they had, but obviously if you're less wealthy, you didn't have much. So that was a meal you could have every week that was like everybody was to hold it together. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians where he says that they're taking communion in a in a, an unworthy manner. People don't understand what that means. That doesn't just mean they weren't spiritual or focusing on Jesus. They were doing it in a way they said like, oh, we're going to have the fellowship communion meal and I'm going to get to the front of the line and eat all the good stuff before all those low life poor people come and eat what's not theirs. And Paul shamed them, said like, how dare you? If you came and brought that food and put it on the Lord's table, guess whose it is? The Lord's. It ain't yours. Like, and he said, like, if that's your attitude, then you wealthy, well-fed person, stay home. Don't come to the meal. You go home and eat and let everybody else share the fellowship meal because we don't want your food is basically what Paul says. And so most churches have buildings that are set up to where it's not practical to have a meal and services to where it's not practical. And so they'll say, like, hey, go out and grab lunch with somebody. Nothing wrong with that. Most most restaurants would be like, please don't tell people not to do that. We need the business. But there's something different about us providing the food and bringing it together generously and putting it out and be like, here we are. Or if we can't do that, being in someone's home and a family inviting us to share their home and their table it means a lot more than just like kind of, uh, I don't know, going and charter, you know, co-opting it out and saying like, hey, you guys cook. We can't do any of that. Like we're gonna, we're just gonna go to lunch together. It means a little bit of something different. I think a big part of that is because there's sacrifice involved. Then mm-hmm. you know, someone who says I'm putting my time into, you know, bringing food to making food mm-hmm. to you know procuring food, or you know, I'm, I'm gonna give my house out for the day, and you know, that means I'm gonna have to get it ready, and I'm gonna have to clean up afterwards, and I'm gonna have to you know schedule a block of time where you know it's it's ready for people. You know, there's sacrifice involved in that, and mm-hmm. and. When we sacrifice for one another, that grows relationship because if someone can see, you know, that person sacrificing for me, uh, then we, uh, you know, it, it just opens up communication and it opens up, you know, the realization that there's true love happening here. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and that's where, you know, fellowship comes in, uh, there is, you know, because at this point in the life of the church, they couldn't just go to Wendy's and all sit there and, you know, get Baconators and yeah. <laughs> enjoy their meal yeah. that way. You know, every single meal involved sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and that just uh, opened up, 
you know, fellowship even more. I think something that's really interesting to me uh, is we often think of the ways that we grow in our own Christian life. Um, we often think of like three things. Um, we often think of, you know, prayer in the Bible and community, mm-hmm. you know, Holy Spirit study and fellowship, whatever, you know, ways you want to say that. Um, we often don't put breaking of bread. We often don't having put a meal. having a meal together in that type of, uh, that type of list. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, like for, for the reasons I just said, I think it's really important because it shows love to the community. And, you know, in just the same way that fellowship is sacrificing time to spend with one another, you know, breaking a bread, having meal is sacrificing your time, sacrificing your energy in order to uh, grow closer together, mm-hmm. um, ultimately for the goal of growing closer to the community as a whole and, and to God. Well, and I just came up with this. So this is a hope thing, but you can take it. Uh, breaking bread breaks barriers. It really does. And when we say welcome to the table to people at hope, Prior to coronavirus, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're going like, this sounds crazy. Do, do you guys have meals? Yes, we did. We Every year, every week after church, we would share a, fel- a fellowship meal where people would bring. Um, one family would, would bring more uh, in order to provide for like guests, people who didn't know about it. But then everybody would just bring what they have, and we ate whatever was there that day. Um, and it, it was beautiful. It was imperfect. I mean, you can't pig out most weeks. Um, but that's not the point. The point isn't to stuff yourself. The, the, the point is to fill, up, to fill up on the time together. And one of the most amazing things that we short shortchange the power of a meal for is its ability to bring us together and break down barriers. And our world needs a whole lot more of that. Can you imagine if, uh, you know, just going into some of the stereotypes that are going on today, somebody really upset um, about protests against the flag or upset about, you know, officers' treatment or charges against them, their family got together with somebody who's upset about the injustice of a black man or a woman whose life has been taken by cops and their family just sharing a meal together, having a cookout, having a barbecue, like what kind of conversation and being like, oh, you're not so different from me. Oh, you like, you like so-and-so too. You like that team? You refer, you know, those things that divide us seem a little less divisive across the dinner table because at the end of the day, it emphasizes the things that we as humans, as children of God share in common. We all need to eat. Most people like a good, you know, pulled pork barbecue sandwich or or rib or whatever. I'm I'm stereotyping, but some uh, most people like a good mac and cheese or really awesome homemade dessert. At our church, there's a lady named Sue. Um, Sue, if you're if you're listening to this, we love you. Thank you for doing this every week. She puts time. Her contribution to the meal every week is an awesome homemade dessert. That lady has introduced like just expanded my horizons and blown my mind with the dessert she brings. Now I'm a I have a sweet tooth. I love sugar, and so every week I tell people like I don't care what else I get from the meal. I just need some of Sue's dessert, and I have that, and it makes me like it's it's part of her gift. Like Sue, one of her gifts is generosity in that area, and hospitality in that way. And so when you share a meal, you invite somebody, even if you go to the Wendy's. And I don't want people to hear this be like, so now you're saying we can't go to restaurants, we can't even pick anything up. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. But what if rather than go out to eat, you plan to have somebody over maybe a little bit later, let their kid get a nap and say, hey, we'll have you over for an early dinner. You know, let's go ahead and grab Wendy's. Who cares? That's fine. That's not really the point isn't about that. But bring it to your home. Or, or share it at a place where you can spend longer time together without a waitress like hurrying you along, without this like, well, we can't really let down our guard. No, 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 let down your guard. Be in each other's homes. 
um, share a table together, do it at church, uh, and that kind of thing. Because there's just there's ways that Jesus wants to break down the things that divide us that just can't be replicated through anything else. And I even include prayer with that. Because when you pray for somebody that you don't know well, your prayers tend to be different than when you pray for somebody that you spend time with. Um, your prayers tend to be more, a little bit more self-righteous. Mine do. They tend to be a little bit more distant, more like, well, God help them fix whatever's over there, which is fine. But I pray differently if it's somebody I love and just had a good meal with and I really want them to be successful in life and know that Jesus loves them. Because, man, we just shared, we laughed together, we joked together, and we realized, oh, we don't see this controversial issue the same. But I still like that person, and it's okay, you know? Yeah. <laughs> to go back to, you know, what you are talking about uh, with fellowship, you know, it's not easy a lot of the times uh, to, to set aside that time to, you know, get Wendy's and to, to chill and, and just have, you know, fellowship time with someone, you know, or like, you know, we've been talking about with the meals after church and stuff. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I know there, there were some weeks when I was like, I'm tired. I just want to get home. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, that's the sacrifice that we're talking about. It's not just, you know, some idea of like, oh, it's just a theoretical sacrifice. It's a real sacrifice. It is. Uh, mm -hmm. but that's what makes it meaningful. Um, at least that's what's part, part of what makes it meaningful. Um, and, and to talk a little bit about, you know, those types of, uh, community that we can see when we do this. Uh, this, you know, last week I, uh, was sitting and having a conversation with a group. Um, and there were two guys who were, you know, uh, people of color, uh, in the group. And we were talking about, you know, the, the riots and we we're talking about the protests and, and, um, you know, about, uh, just our experience of them. And you when know, they were at the camp, you're yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we were talking about, you know, they, they shared their experiences of, you know, the ways that they felt pressured to, um, you know, do different things, um, and, and just the amount of pressure they felt, uh, just to, to be a part of, you know, speaking out, but also to find the right way to do it. Um, and it would became a, you know, fairly emotional conversation. And at the end of it, um, you know, everyone kind of was, you know, dispersing and, uh, these two guys, they got up together and, and they, uh, hugged each other and they held the hug for, uh, much longer than I expected. It mm. was, you know, a 45 second hug. And you know, that hug itself did more to help me understand, uh, the kind of experiences they were going through than all of the talking that we did mm -hmm. just to see, you know, the way that they responded to that and the way that they, you know, needed that mm -hmm. understanding. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, fellowship does, you know, it, it takes us out of that church environment of just like, you know, Hey, how you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. Here's what's happening to me. And it brings us into the real world of, you know, here's what I'm experiencing. And, and here's, uh, you know, just a little time for you to see me and to know me and hopefully understand, uh, what I'm going through a little more. And, you know, through that, you know, we can, um, address those hurts and we can help each other, um, we can encourage one another in, you know, what's going good and we can, um, you know, build each other up and, you know, what isn't going so good. And, mm. you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's such an important part of fellowship yeah, and, and breaking the bread, you know? Well, and how, so it's going to lead to the last part of this cause you already read it was prayer. And, um, you know, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And if you look, most churches don't have an extended any time I even even in small groups I've been a part of small groups and awkward as a heart attack you ask for prayer requests and it's just like this like whatever it's 
I were like, why do people feel so awkward praying? Well, because it's a vulnerable thing to do. Um, and it's uncomfortable when you're doing it for or with people that you don't know. And so this whole, they're all linked. So they're learning together. They're hanging out while they're learning together. So they're laughing, they're having fun, they're going to games, they're fishing, they're hiking, they're going to get their nails done, going to movie, whatever. They're doing that. They're sharing meals as an element of that, which means they know they're sharing a lot of life. And then the ability to pray with the group of people that are around them is so much easier than if a lot of churches were like, hey, turn to your neighbor and pray for them. Or even within a family, it would be awkward. Now, it's at, we're at Hope. We, we do prayer every week, too. And it is still awkward. We're, we're growing in that. Like, it feels like a lot of people are still uncomfortable about like, man, I, I don't know this, you know, and that mourns me. That more people are uncomfortable about that because it means how poor of a job the church has done in equipping people to go, hey, prayer is just talking to your heavenly father and best friend. You don't have to perform. And it's supposed to be prayer like with other good friends, your family, for those things. But it's just – it feels so uncomfortable, so awkward because it's like, what do I say? What if I say the wrong thing? I don't want to know their business, whatever. No, the early church wanted to know each other's business. They wanted to spend time together, and then they wanted to turn to their Heavenly Father to pray over the group as a whole, as the church family, but also for the other people in the church family that they personally knew. And, uh, man, most churches, you know, like most that I've been a part of, you know, the official couple of guys, the worship leader, an elder, and the pastor pray, and everybody else stays silent. There's like no really seeking God's heart in prayer. And I think I'm not judging people for it. I think it's because we don't know the people we're around and we don't feel engaged and encouraged to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of times prayer is hard because we either misunderstand what prayer is or we, you know, don't understand the people around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's a lot of what you are saying. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, when we get into those prayer circles and it's like, you know, share something that you want someone to pray for you for, you know, it's, we're often debating like, you know, how much do I share? I just don't want to come off weird and I don't want people to misunderstand me. You know, uh, do I share this thing or should I share this other thing? And, you know, uh, so that's like the, you know, we don't understand the people around us, but a lot of times I think we don't understand what prayer is too. Um, we don't understand that it really is just a conversation with God. It really is just, you know, the ability to come into the throne room and, and mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, you know, here's what I'm dealing with and here's what my struggles are. And, you know, here's a friend of mine and here's what they're dealing with. Here's what their struggles are. Uh, you know, God, we just, you know, you know, we need you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's not all prayer is, but that's, you know, the, the primary f- foundation, you know, mm-hmm. fundamentally what prayer is. Is, is coming and being able to just have a conversation with God. And I think a lot of times we get so caught up in like, oh, there's so many other people that are going to be hearing me. I got to make it professional. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, got to be the official prayer. Yeah, yeah. I got to make it some profound thing that teaches yeah. people. You know, there are, you know, sometimes when um, prayers affect people uh, in more than just participation. But I think that that's really, that's the main part of it, is just participating together in a conversation with God. And that should really be what our uh, our view of it is, because I think it, you know, not only uh, can hurt other people, but it also just hurts 
the church as a whole if we misunderstand prayer you know if if we get into a viewpoint of like prayer is you know just another opportunity for me to you know tell someone you know hey this is something i'm telling you with authority you know this is like some kind of like a little mini sermon that i'm in the prayer, speaking through right. my prayer you know what i'm saying yeah so i've been i've been I think a part that, of those i think that you know that hurts uh, our view of prayer as a church and i think that that can lead to uh sometimes uh you know this hard time that we have with praying as a, as a community yeah and we're, our muscles are atrophied as church families with it and you know but we're missing out on so much with friendship and unity because prayer there's not there's you know you get to like somebody but then prayer is like that seal on the deal that powerful thing where you're going to the only person who's powerful enough to really do something about the circumstances in their life on their behalf with them so you are putting your arm around them spiritually and saying father i want to talk to you about my friend here my brother sister here and i want to pour out my heart on their behalf that people don't realize it's happening but emotionally mentally uh, relationally psychologically that is hugely powerful in somebody's self-worth their identity their identity in jesus is when another christ follower says i'm not praying for my stuff I'm going to God the Father, who I believe in, with you, and saying, Jesus, what can you do about this situation? We entrust their life to you, and it matters enough to me to step through my awkwardness, my nerves, my anxiety, and pray on their behalf. That's a powerful gift to give our Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's a really, you know, something that comes to my mind is it's a really important part of, uh, you know, helping those who are hurting. Prayer mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, it's a chance to come alongside them you know, and to be with them in their pain and their hurt and, mm-hmm. and to not, you know, say, um, you know, something that I was listening to this last week was a sermon about Psalm 42 and about, you know, uh, the soul when it goes through times of pain and times of trouble. And Job, when he talks about, um, you know, he's sitting there with his friends and, you know, his friends are just nitpicking everything he has to say and, you know, going, well, that's not really theologically correct. And Job is like, guys, I'm just in pain here. Like, I'm, you know, when I say like, I feel like God has deserted me, you know, I'm not saying like, I, you know, think that God has actually deserted me. That's just the way that I'm feeling right now in my pain. And I think, you know, prayer is a big part of coming alongside someone and, you know, getting away from that position of, you know, let's get the theology right and more getting to the place of, you know, let's deal with the hurt and mm-hmm. let's, you know, uh, give it to God and let's, uh, figure out how we're going to deal with it and, and move through it. Mm. All right. So let's move on to verse 43 it says everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So to this point, we haven't heard of one of these wonders and signs, but Jesus promised them that they would get the Holy spirit. That's what the whole thing of Pentecost was and that they would be his witnesses in the community. And so at least the earliest apostles had powers in Jesus' name, things that they were able to do through the Holy Spirit um, that helped legitimize the message that they were putting forward, his hope that they were still spreading. And Luke actually shares one of these. We aren't going to read it today, um, but Luke shares one of these in verse uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, about a very similar situation to things that Jesus had faced, where a blind man asks Peter and John, as they were coming into the temple to to help him, um, thinking that they would give him money. And instead, Peter uh, gets this, like, really, I don't know what his look was, but he really intensely looks at the guy and says, look at me. And the guy thinks he's getting money, and Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, my most valuable possession I give to you, now walk 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, the guy jumps and walks, and uh, people see, and they're amazed. And it really has the exact same type of um, description that Luke gave to his description of Jesus' miracles. A lot of emphasis on the awe and the amazement and the impact on those around them. So the whole time that the apostles are being faithful, being devoted to these things we've just spent all this time talking about, the Holy Spirit is still working through them to do his work. So they're spending time together, they're they're studying, they're spending time, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit is showing up. And so as they're going about building this community, people they're getting people's attention by all these miraculous things that they're able to do, not in their own name, but because they continue to call on the name of Jesus. And they say, by his power, uh, be healed. And so the Holy Spirit is doing things to make sure that this little movement continues to open doors and amaze people and uh, build interest and gain traction uh, by doing these kind of things. And it leads, what we're about to talk about next, it leads to these kind of radical um, at least by our standards, radical things that Jesus' earliest followers, this first church, were willing to do on a regular basis because they were so amazed by the kind of community they had and by the power of the Holy Spirit that was going on around them. Wow. Uh, sorry, guys, about the background noise. There's construction going on. But, yeah, uh, you know, these miracles, these wonders that are happening, you know, are, are God uh, attesting to the validity and his, you know, his backing of the church. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, it reminds me a lot of in Acts 2, verse 22, it says, you know, this is Peter preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, just in the same way that God was confirming Jesus's ministry mm-hmm. through his miracles, you know, God is confirming the ministry of the church through their miracles. And, you know, through the power of God, you know, the church is able to uh, spread out and flourish and, mm-hmm. and grow. And like you said, live a radical life. And that's what we see in the end of Acts 2. The rest of the verses, starting in verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's amazing. That's probably one of the most powerful passages, uh, inspiring passages about our mission and what it should look like in action that is in the entire Bible. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you know, we could live a life that people would be able to say this stuff about us? Yeah, because it says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. So generally, maybe not the Jewish religious leaders, the same ones who had pushed for Jesus' execution, but generally the people in the streets of Jerusalem, of Galilee, of wherever they're at— at this point, have a favorable view of the little church, the the church of 3,100, that 20 that is around right now. They generally go, wow, that's a cool thing. And, and maybe they haven't decided to be a part of it, but they generally go, I like what you guys do. So maybe they're enjoying it from afar. And some of the things they're amazed by are these things that are kind of radical to us. As Christians today, we go like, whoa. So there's a lot you read there. What What stands out to you as maybe one of them that is the most radical that they were doing. Well, one that really sticks out to me is in verse 46, you know, it says that they were meeting in the temple courts together. Mm-hmm. And that that's just crazy to me that, you know, they're living such a public life as a church community, especially, um, you know, when they're expecting persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are 
you know, different levels of persecution that they're seeing at this time. It hasn't become full-blown, you know, what we would think of as early church persecution. But at the same time, they're not it doesn't seem like they're being cautious at all. You know, it's just like if we were going to, to go downtown Colorado Springs and just like hold church on the corner of a street, mm-hmm. like just hold full church on the corner of a street. You know, that, that's, Why that's not? the, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the public life that they have as churches is they're, they're getting out there and they're, you know, just becoming a part of the community of, you know, the city of, of, you know, wherever they're at and, and just being, um, you know, specifically here, Jerusalem and, and just being, uh, you know, being visible. And through that, you know, a lot of people see the church and see, you know, what they're doing. And that's why they have favor with people because mm-hmm. people are able to see if, if they're just meeting in underground caverns, you know, or, or meeting in caves outside the city, like nobody's going to be able to see them and be able to have favor with them. But I it's because that. they're living a public life that people are able to see them and, and see who they are and, and see that power of God, uh, that God is working through them. I, that doesn't one of them that usually stands out to me as that radical, but you have to remember they were meet. So the temple courts are where the chief priests always hung out. So they are doing this and the temple courts is a big place, but not a huge place for several hundred to a thousand people to regularly. I mean, all, all 3000 weren't there at one time, but they were regularly, there was this horde. You get the sense that there is this movement that is taking over the space. And like the Jewish leaders at this point don't know what to do about it. They tried to get rid of Jesus and they couldn't. Um, and so they're kind of, you think at this moment, having their head in the sand, they're about to wake up because we're going to see them get on Peter and John and the apostles and order them not to preach in Jesus's name here in just the next chapter. Um, but at this quick moment here, uh, they're, they're like kind of stunned by the boldness of Jesus's followers. And you're right. Like in this type of situation, how many churches would continue to hold such a public presence? Very few. Most would say, like, uh, that's that's against the law. That's just, uh, they already put Jesus to death for that. So even though we know he rose again, like, we better go. We better be a little bit more low-key. We better not rock the boat. That would just be the wise thing. Yeah, that's the wise thing. But how many times is the wise thing an excuse for us to do the unfaithful thing or the timid thing? I mean, and we have to be careful about that because wisdom is important. But, and, you know, they felt like spending time together— and being open about it was essential to their church. And it was not to be hidden under, you know, under a book, a bucket. The light of Jesus was not to be hidden. And so they did it publicly, almost daring the Jewish officials and the Roman authorities whom they had used to execute Jesus to get rid of all them too. I mean, that's what they're doing here. They're, this is only a couple months time now after Jesus's execution. And this is what they're doing right in the temple courts. You know, so I had never thought of that being radical, but they were radical in their boldness and in their, you know, public, public faith, public display of faith. Some pe- some elements of our society wouldn't smile so uh, fondly on that. In fact, you brought up the go down to Acacia Park down um, town and try and do a service. I bet you you hear someone like, well, you're not permitted. Your neighbors don't like that, you know, whatever. And so then is the whole balance of the wisdom and the and the whatever. But. Let's just be clear. These Christ followers had non-Christ followers who they were trying to reach who did not want them meeting, and they did it anyway. So even in our society, you get a situation where people are like, hey, we'd rather not have you here. We don't like that. Okay, well, don't meet in an obnoxious way, in an offensive way. But if your mere presence, the fact you're doing things you feel to be essential to your faith, offends them, there's nothing you can do about that. You have to be faithful. 
That's awesome. I love that you said that. The ones that stick out to me, um, there are two that I think would really make a lot of us in modern Christianity, Christ followers, churches kind of take pause. And, um, you know, the ones they were together and had everything in common, that means they were united, guys. They they were sharing their possessions, as we just read a second ago, but they were also more united in spirit. Like, they wanted to be around each other. That's how you can retranslate that. Um, but the things that stuck out is um, they sold property and gave to anyone who had need. So we will sometimes give out of our excess. Like, I have some extra money, so I'll give. They weren't giving out of their excess. They were giving beyond what they had. They were selling things. It'd be akin to somebody being like, hey, I, I coronavirus, I have this much medical debt. We're going to lose our home. Somebody else being like, we sold our car. We give you this money to to uh, you know, to pay off your medical debt. We as Christians today go like, whoa, that's extreme. That's radical. We can't do that. That's like real faith. You know, That's what they were doing. It challenges me. It really challenges me. And then the, the next one was Every day, the every day, like people, when I preached on this verse on Sunday, people, I was like, no, people, I'm not telling you now we're going to start having church every day, but why not? And it's like, well, we're busy. Well, you can't get people to come. Well, why not? Well, now they did meet in the temple courts, which was something that most of them were doing anyway. Um, it was a part of normal rhythm life. But this would be akin to maybe every day you go to work and every day you share lunch with the same people and you talk about the Bible, you encourage them in their life, you pray over each other. Like every day this is happening. It's not a once a week thing. It's not a couple time a month thing. It's certainly not a Christmas and Easter thing. Like every day they are choosing to spend time together and they're doing it, it says, with glad and sincere hearts. Our schedules just don't work for that. And it seems so radical and like, wait, you want me to come every week? That's extreme. Well, okay, let's compare that. If they needed fellowship for what they were facing every day, why do we feel like we need so little fellowship to be healthy in our faith and united with Jesus and with our church family? It's something that I look in the mirror and I go, huh? That comes up against my my introversion. Uh, pretty strongly. It seems radical and yet it seems inspiring. It's like, I want to be a part of that, but it's also kind of scary. You know? Yeah. These are both things that I really see as things that we can all grow towards. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think that we can all just, you know, go a hundred percent, you know, that wouldn't be healthy to our ourselves uh, just to sell literally everything we own or to, you know, well, it say, didn't say people were regularly right, selling right. all and putting themselves right. in poverty, but they are willing to sell things they wanted. Right. You know, and I'm just trying to say that, you know, we're trying to find, you know, the balance of where we, you know, where God wants us to be. And I think a lot of times it's, you know, further along the path than we are, because I think we're oftentimes, you know, uh, selfish with our time and with our resources. Mm. Um, so we all have to grow towards it and find where that place is. Um, you know, for me, that, you know, possessions, that kind of thing has, has, has long been a goal of mine to grow, continue to grow towards um, the day by day that, you know, spending time uh, with those in the church community that hasn't been. But, you know, that'll be something that I kind of throw into the list of things is, you know, that's something that I can grow towards and, and, and find, you know, it's just spend a little more time, you know, every week, every month every year, whatever, spend a little more time uh, with the church community and find that place of uh, where God wants me to be. Um, And I think, you know, that's something we can all aspire to is, you know, this quote unquote radical 
church life Mm -hmm. that uh, really is, you know, uh, necessary for us uh, within our relationship with God. Well, and and this is the last thing I have to say about it, but you've made an interesting comment. A lot of times we're stingy with our time and we're stingy with our resources. And that's both of those most radical elements um, seem like it pushes against that stinginess uh, and that me first. And so when we look at church and we go, I can't be there, I can't show up to that group, or I can't help that person, okay, what could I adjust in my schedule sacrificially? I mean, anything good that you give is is something you've sacrificed for. Otherwise, you're just throwing out at the leftovers. What could you make? I'm not going to make this decision. I'm going to make this decision to give those people that I love, my mission family, my group, my, you know, people I'm trying to reach with the gospel, whoever it is, my time. Okay, so that's, that are, you know, pe- Americans value time, I think, even more than money. Um, and so they'll pay a lot of money to save time. And so that's the harder of the two. But then very closely related to it is um, what can I give up? You know, maybe if we need two cars, maybe our second car isn't as nice of a car. You know, we downsize or we sell it for something cheaper and we give that money to somebody else or to the church if it's in need or whatever. Because the church family, the church overall, hope and every church, big C, um, only survives if its people are generous to it. If we're not, if we're like, well... We could have given that money, but we went on this trip instead. Well, I could have done this, but I, I wanted to buy this instead. I really needed this whatever, fill in the blank. Those add up, and it means our church uh, or any church or the people in the church don't thrive as much. But when we each have a sacrificial attitude with that, then the needs of the church as a group and the individual in it can be met. Not because it's one family's responsibility to like sell all they have and be like, hey— we, we're glad you have a home. We're homeless now. But because combined through the entirety of the church family, God can meet those needs. As people feel the spirit leading and they go, I'm going to respond to this need generously. And I'm going to sacrifice a little bit here to make sure that they have what they need or the church has what it needs or my neighbor, or this non-Christian friend's have, friend has what they need. Yeah, all of this stuff, you know, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, spending time together, selling possessions for one another. Uh you know, meeting out in public and, and providing a way for, you know, non-believers to see what the church really is. All of this stuff, uh, it seems like such a radical church life to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because it requires sacrifice. But that sacrifice makes way for true life in Christ. Mm. Well said. Well, thanks for listening this week. Um, you can go online and get connected to the community of Hope Colorado Springs. You can go to the Facebook page. Um We have lots of resources there for community, for getting plugged in. Uh, You can go to the Holding Out Hope podcast Facebook page and connect with us. Share your stories of hope in action. Oh, please do Uh, that, guys. We'd like to read them. Share your own thoughts on what we've been talking about. Um, Love to see, you know, uh, conversation and and be able to uh, communicate with you guys and interact with you guys on that. Uh, But, uh, yeah, just thanks thanks so much for listening. This has been a joy and uh, been really interesting to dive into church life and what it really should be. Absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us. We look forward to being with you next time.